From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. God, God loves everyone. I mean, it sounds so banal, but it is something that people need to be invited to see. And now people will say, I think this is a sort of the harder question is, well, how do I know that? What do you say that God loves me? That's like a bumper sticker or some, some poster on a, you know, a wall. And then you start to say, right, let's look at experiences you've had in your life. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend James Martin. You may remember him if you're a longtime listener because we had him on the show a few years back talking about his book, The Seven Last Words, which was an investigation into the seven last words of Jesus. James Martin is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine, consultant to the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication, and author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Jesus a Pilgrimage, and the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. He's also a frequent commentator in the national and international media, having appeared on such diverse outlets as the Colbert Report, NPR's Fresh Air, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Today, we're talking about his recent book, out from Harper One, called Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everything. Everyone. Reverend James Martin, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thanks. Good to be back. So I want to start our conversation in sort of a weird place. It has to do with the DNA of the show that I'm doing here, Things Not Seen. About 10 years ago, there was an anthropologist by the name of T.M. Lerman. And this anthropologist put out a book called When God Talks Back. And Dr. Lerman had interviewed a bunch of evangelicals who have this kind of practice that they call coffee with Jesus, where they sit down in the morning or in the afternoon and they set out a cup of coffee and then they set out an extra cup of coffee at an empty spot in front of them. And they imagine that they are having a conversation with Jesus. Now, I first encountered this book and this idea when I was listening to another national radio show. And the interviewer on that show was speaking to Dr. Lerman and said, at one point, about midway through the conversation, you know, when we have children and they have imaginary friends, eventually we tell them to give up their imaginary friends. Didn't you ever feel at any point that you needed to say to these evangelicals, you need to give up your imaginary friends? And that was largely an impetus for why I wanted to start this show. Longtime listeners will have heard that story, but I've never had the chance to talk about that story in the context of a book like yours, Learning to Pray. I'm really interested in how you would have reacted to a question like that when an interviewer would say, don't you just think that you need to tell people to give up their imaginary friends? So that's where I'd like to start in talking to you about prayer. Well, sure. Uh, Jesus is not imaginary. That's the first thing I would say. He existed. We know that. Christians believe he rose from the dead. He's present to us through the Holy Spirit. But by the same token, that does not mean that every single thing that pops into your mind that you imagine Jesus saying to you is coming from God. So one of the things I talk about in the book is 
being open to God's ways of communicating with us through prayer. And I think most people would say they feel who are believers, they feel God communicates with them through their emotions and kind of peak moments in, in church or out in nature or with friends or family. But again, that doesn't mean every single thing that happens to you is coming from Jesus. And so in the book, I talk about ways of discerning what is authentic and what is not. It's more of an art than a science. But again, not everything that pops in your mind is, is God speaking to you. And as a friend of mine likes to say, not every leaf that falls in front of your path is a message from God. Well, what I really like about that answer is, first of all, it begins to speak to what you're attempting to do in this book, Learning to Pray, which is, in my reading, to give it sort of a comprehensive scope about what the prayer life, particularly in a Christian context, but not necessarily limited to a Christian context. You talk a little bit about Zen Buddhism and some other aspects of prayer life in your in your chapter on centering prayer. But before we get too much further into the book, you just used a term that I want to make sure all of my listeners are tracking with. You use this term discernment. Can you give us a brief definition of what that term means? Sure. It's a kind of fancy theological or spiritual word for, I would say, prayerful decision-making. You discern between the kinds of things you experience in your prayer that seem like they're coming from God and seem like they're not coming from God. So for example, I would say in that situation, which is a good situation you pointed to, and some people do like to pray that way. If you are praying and imagining yourself with Jesus, which is an, a, a tried and true way of praying, of imagining Jesus speaking to you and trusting that Jesus you know, will speak to you sometimes through your prayer. If you imagine Jesus saying to you, I want you to pick up a, a baseball bat and hit this person over the head, you can say that probably is not coming from Jesus. So just because it pops into your mind, you want to punch someone in the face that you're mad at. It doesn't mean that God is asking you to do that. And so the discerning is saying, how can I be reasonably sure that what I'm experiencing in prayer is coming from God? Now, look, if someone is outside and they're looking at, let's say, Lake Michigan, I used to live in Chicago for a couple of years, and they just find it so beautiful and it's really moving and they get this feeling of calm and they've been asking God for a sense of peace in the middle of the pandemic. And they feel this calm that feels almost otherworldly, like it's coming from outside of them. You can say, yeah, that, that's probably God that's speaking to you. And again, that's different than having an experience of wanting to punch someone in the face. And so that's part of discernment. What is coming from God and what is not coming from God? That, that's what discernment means. What I really am fascinated about in that answer is it ties back to something that you deal with in your book, Learning to Pray, and that is when we encounter texts like Psalm 137. Okay, and so for listeners who don't have that sort of memorized or ready to hand, that is, and you say in the book, Learning to Pray, that's probably one of the harshest scriptures out there. It's where the Israelites in Babylonian captivity are talking about being mocked by the Babylonians, and their response is a desire to lash out, to even kill the children of the Babylonians. And you just talked about sort of an urge to hit someone with a baseball bat, and here we have Psalm 137 saying, go out and basically do violence to the children. And I think that you deal with that really wonderfully in the book. You say there are times where we get messages, even in God's word, that we can't take literally. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about when we're confronted by a message in prayer or a message in scripture that pulls us away from love, how are we to interpret that? Well, I think those are two different questions. So the first question is, how do we look at a scripture passages written many thousands of years ago that may have been interpreted differently you know, back then, how do we understand them in the context of how they were written? For example, we don't say we're going to stone people who blaspheme any longer. I mean, people say we're, we're just not going to do that. And even though that is in the Old Testament, we're not going to do it. Why is that? Because we understand those things differently. How did the psalmist understand 
the passage you read, you know, may your enemies' babies be dashed against the rocks, those kinds of things. Well, we have to say at that point, maybe they actually did want the babies of their enemies dashed against the rocks. Maybe they were speaking metaphorically, but today we don't want to dash babies' heads against the rocks, people who are sane at least. So that's one way. One question is how do we understand scripture in that context? But the other question is, how do we discern what comes up in our prayer and what comes up when we're meditating or contemplating? And how do we find out whether or not that's authentically from God? Now, look, as I said, it's an art, not a science, but you can be pretty sure that if you feel like punching someone in the face, that's not coming from God. And why is that? I talk about that in the book, you know, because that doesn't fit with what we know about God, that for the Christian, that doesn't fit with what we know about Jesus. I think most people, when they're praying and they experience something in prayer, and I talk about this in the book at length, emotions, insights, memories, desires, let's just say an insight into Jesus's life. Most people can trust that's coming from God. You know, if it leads to an increase of love and charity and faith, and it calms you and it makes sense, and it seems like it fits with what we know about God, most of the time, what is coming up in people's prayer is coming from God and they can trust it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. Longtime listeners will recognize his voice because he was on our show a couple of years back talking about his book about the seven last words of Jesus. Today we're talking about his recent book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Just a moment ago, you talked about the ways in which looking at prayer and looking at scripture, we have a kind of sense of what we know about God. And when we are getting messages from prayer or getting messages from scripture, we're filtering them through a lot of different lenses, historical interpretation and otherwise. But one of the things you said is we also want to see if it fits with what we know about God. But what really struck me about your book, Learning to Pray, is that you are not necessarily assuming that the reader has a lot of knowledge about faith, a lot of knowledge about God or Jesus, or a lot of knowledge about prayer. You certainly are writing at a level where those who do have information about those topics can feel at home. But what was really striking to me was how welcoming the book was to the novice, to the beginner. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the thought process that went into how you structured the book in that way. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, I when I entered the Jesuits 30 years ago, I didn't know anything about prayer and I'm still learning. And I think that most people feel that when they sit down and close their eyes or kneel down or walk or try to pray, they don't feel anything happens. And so they think, well, I'm bad at prayer or God's mad at me or I'll never be able to pray. And so I wanted to do a book that was really accessible and inviting and assumed that people knew nothing but could come up to speed you know, pretty quickly. And I also wanted to do a book that was really clear right? I think many spiritual books talk about, well, you feel God's presence or when God is close. And when I was a Jesuit novice, I would read stuff like that and say, what are you talking about? You know, or God communicating, even I'm sure some listeners are probably rolling their eyes when they hear God's message to you. What is that? Is that voices or visions or no, it's the kinds of things that come up in most people's prayer. As I said, emotions, insights, memories, desires, feelings, and to just look at those clearly and to do it in a way that's inviting and not threatening to people, and but also not mystifying. Prayer is a mystery in the end, but there are certain things that happen in people's prayer life that I've experienced as a spiritual director for 20 years that I think it's just, it's okay to talk about these things in a kind of clear and direct way. So when I work with my own students, when I'm teaching in various programs, 
one of the things that we wrestle with is this question of writing clearly about mysterious things. And so the paradox is if you write clearly about a mystery, is the clarity that you get going to be mysterious or will it be clear? What I really like about your answer is that you looked at that Gordian knot and you planted your flag firmly on one side. You said, we're going to try and err on the side of being as clear and as followable as possible. And I really think you accomplished it in the book. But I wonder, did you ever feel like you were shortchanging the mystery when you were doing that? Oh, sure. Because even coming up with rules or guidelines for how you determine something is coming from God or not, I I can only give them guidelines. As I say, it's an art, not a science. But I think the biggest question that people have when they start to pray is what's supposed to happen? I mean, let's be blunt. Most people, including myself, when I was a Jesuit novice, they'd say, okay, go off and pray or meditate on this passage from scripture or imagine yourself speaking with Jesus or do centering prayer or whatever kind of prayer that you want to talk about. And most people say, well, what's supposed to happen? I have no idea. Am I supposed to hear a voice or words are supposed to come into my head? And that's what the sort of thrust of the book is, helping people understand what does happen, what can happen. Also not being upset when things don't seem to happen. And, you know, really elaborating that as one has to do as a spiritual director. So that I think is the great sin, if you will, of many spirituality or prayer books. They talk very vaguely about when God feels close or when God sends you this message and people say, what are you talking about? And so I've had experience in counseling people and and also more importantly in, in hearing their experiences. And so I can share with the reader the kinds of things that generally happen to people. We'll be getting into all of that as our conversation continues, but for right now, we're going to take a quick break. If you've just joined us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're happy to welcome back Father James Martin, talking about his recent book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Reverend Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large at at America Magazine, consultant to the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication, and author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. We will be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying the conversation that you're hearing today, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to welcome back to the show Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. Longtime listeners will remember that we had Father Martin on to talk about his book, Covering the Seven Last Words of Jesus. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Well, one of the things that is wonderful about the breadth of the work that you do is that not only are you working as a spiritual director, not only are you working as a Jesuit and a priest, but you also are very connected with the media. And that means that there are times when you are 
called on to consult on various media projects. And one of those large-scale media projects was a film called Silence. And readers of your book, Learning to Pray, will hear a little bit about how you were involved in the film and what the plot of the film is. But at its heart, it's about a crisis of faith among a couple of Jesuit priests who are in Asia. One of the things that comes out in the process of reflecting on your work with the film is that there's a question about how do you know when there's a kind of a genuine call from God? How do you know when a nudge or a voice or some sort of message is coming from God? And there's one phrase that you write in that part of the book, Learning to Pray, that just hit me like a bolt of lightning. You say, as a Jesuit, I've been trained through my entire career to know when it's the voice or know when it's the message of God. And I'm paraphrasing that, so I may have said it badly. If there's a way to say it better, I'd welcome for you to correct me. But I'd also love for you to expand on that. What does it mean to be trained to hear the genuine message of God? Well, it's less mysterious than you would think. Basically, in general, and this is one of the insights of St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, God's voice is the voice of hope, of calm, of uplift, and the voice that is, let's say, not coming from God is the voice of despair and hopelessness and, and panic. A more contemporary example, more contemporary than 17th century Jesuit missionaries in Japan, from which is the plot from silence, would be the pandemic. And I often tell people interiorly, when you feel that sort of impulse or that attraction to hope, peace, calm, you can trust that's coming from God, Right. When you feel panicky or hopeless or despairing, that's not coming from God. And so there are certain impulses or voices, if you will, not literal voices, but there are certain movements of our spirit interiorly. And we all feel that. Look, we feel that pull from day to day between despair and hope. And the voice of God is the voice of hope. And that makes sense with what we know about God. That makes sense with the Christian, with what he or she knows about Jesus, right? Jesus is always about fear not. So it, it fits with how we imagine God, with what we know about God, and for the Christian, with what we know about Jesus. And I always tell people, look, there are two voices, right? And they're just pull, and it's up to you to say yes to one of the voices and, you know, or the impulses, if you will. And, you know, God knows what's best for you. And so listen to the voice of hope. So that's a little bit of more of a contemporary example. And I think people would say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, I would imagine that that's the way that God would communicate with me. And so that's the voice I'll listen to. And so that's what I mean by listening to voices, not some sort of weird oral phenomenon. What strikes me about that is it really grounds in passages like from the Apostle Paul, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is mm -hmm. true, think on these things. But you mentioned a moment ago, St. Ignatius Loyola, and he in many ways reintroduced the idea of imagination in prayer in a way that really caught fire. And I, let me give some background on that. We have a lot of intellectual movements in the history of Christianity. And at the time that Ignatius Loyola was getting started, it was right when the Protestant Reformation was breaking out. The Reformation in many ways was trying to pull away from things like the connection to nature, the connection to the senses. It was a very cerebral form of prayer. You had to have the right beliefs. And Ignatius comes along and says, you can imagine and you can use your imagination actively in prayer. But I'd love for my listeners to hear a little bit about who Ignatius was and how and why he brought this idea of imagination so fully back into the center of prayer. Yeah, that's a great question. So Ignatius was born in 1491 in the Basque country of Spain. He, I won't tell you his entire life, but he was a soldier, kind of led a somewhat dissolute life. And 
was hit by a cannonball in, in a battle in Pamplona, Spain in 1521 and was laid up in bed and had nothing else to read other than Lives of the Saints and a Life of Christ, which he didn't really want to read. He wanted to read adventure tales. And as he read, he thought, wow, I, I, I feel like if I patterned myself after the saints, I'd be happy. And this was the beginning of discernment, which I'm, I'm glad you brought up, because he realized that when he was thinking of following his own life, his old life of sort of vanity and uh, daring do and really wanting to impress people, he was excited. But then it left him afterwards feeling a little bit dry. Yeah, that doesn't really console me. But when he thought about following the lives of the saints, he was not only excited, but afterwards he, he found this sense of consolation and, and peace. And that's the beginning of his discernment. He starts to realize the insight for Ignatius is not simply that I'm having these feelings, but that these feelings might be coming from God and might be ways that God has of drawing me. So that's the beginning of discernment in his own life. He starts to say, wow, I, I, I wonder if that feeling interiorly is coming from God. So he has a conversion experience. He turns his life over to God. He has him, himself a series of mystical experiences. Long story short, he ends up through different byways and highways founding the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. And all along, his own prayer life is very imaginative. And he writes a book called The Spiritual Exercises. That's a sort of a plan for a retreat where you imagine yourself in gospel passages. I mean, you know, he means that literally you close your eyes and what would it look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What am I smelling? What am I tasting? And you see what comes up in prayer. And oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes in prayer, when you do that, you'll have a new insight. This happens all the time. I was directing a retreat virtually this weekend and I invited them to do this kind of prayer experience. And Again, you're surprised at the kinds of things that come up. People have these insights. And again, it, it makes sense that God would give them a helpful or a consoling or a peaceful insight into the gospel passages that makes sense through their imagination. And for people who say, well, how can that be? They say, well, God can work through all sorts of things through nature and relationships and the sacraments. Why not your imagination? And so it's just, it's one way to pray. And it's, as you say, it's a very popular way to pray thanks to St. Ignatius. And it's, a, it's probably the type of prayer that Jesuits are most known for. In the book, I call it Ignatian Contemplation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're delighted to welcome back to the show Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine. We've had him on the show before talking about his book about the seven last words of Jesus. Today, we're talking about his recent book from Harper One, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Well, in your book, Learning to Pray, staying on this subject of imaginative prayer, you mention at one point a conversation, I think it might have been on a radio show or a podcast hosted by Timothy Cardinal Dolan. And Cardinal Dolan is mentioning that he was engaged at one point in this imaginative prayer, and he was imagining that he was in the manger after the birth of Jesus. And at one point, and I forget whether it was his spiritual director or someone else, suggested that he imagine holding the baby Jesus. And that was a very powerful moment for me in, in reading your book, Learning to Pray, because I suddenly, you know, Cardinal Dolan is a very powerful man. Sometimes I think of him as an aloof man. And thinking of him contemplating the vulnerability of a small child in his arms. And I, I know that you can't speak for his experience, but you sought to include it in your book. And I'm wondering what you learned from Cardinal Dolan telling you about that. Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. What I learned was that all of us, whether or not we're a cardinal or the newest baptized Catholic at Easter or someone who's just beginning to pray, 
are invited to have those, I believe, those personal experiences with prayer that make the prayer our own. And I think it was a surprise for Cardinal Dolan, as I recall him telling me on his radio show, and I can say this because it was public, he was talking about this. He imagined himself in the nativity scene. And again, this is not some mystical experience. He's not having a vision. He's, he's in, in his, his imagination. And I think Mary gave him Jesus to look at and just hold. And I think what was beautiful about that for me was, I asked him this, I said, I bet the next time you heard that story, it was different for you. So see, that's the kind of thing that can happen in prayer. Who knows what happened to him when he was holding Jesus or what insights he got or what emotions came up, but you can trust that that's a gift from God, that that experience in prayer, which is not some vision, but that experience in prayer is a gift from God that enables him to enter into the life of Jesus more intimately, contemplating whatever, Jesus's vulnerability or his own vulnerability, such that the gospel story becomes more personal and becomes more of his own. And that's just a great help. And so that's a perfect example of people say, well, how do I know it's coming from God? You would have to work pretty hard <laughs> to say that this is not coming from God or that God doesn't want you to have this experience. And so that's where the discernment comes in. So a good spiritual director would say, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds like a real gift. And the, the more you do spiritual direction, and the more you pray, the more you're able to say, yeah, that's a great gift from God. And you don't go crazy about it and you don't get frightened by it. And you also don't think of yourself as this great saint or this great mystic because sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And it happened to other people just as much as it'll happen to you. And I think people get more comfortable uh, the more they pray with those kinds of experiences and prayer, such that when they hear someone talk about a quote unquote message from God, it doesn't freak them out. It's just, yeah, it's just part of uh, God's relationship with me. You've used this term a couple of times, spiritual direction and spiritual director. And I just want to make sure my listeners are tracking. So when you're using that term, can you give us a brief definition of what you mean? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was using it freely. So a spiritual director is basically a person who helps another person uh, see where God is active in their prayer and in their daily life. That's basically it. And it's someone who is trained to do that. Spiritual direction is going to this person, this director, they're called, sometimes spiritual guide, and basically talking about your prayer. And the person is a sounding board and is trained to recognize the kinds of things that I was just talking about. And so they're used to hearing stories like that. So if, for example, Cardinal Dolan came to his director, they would probably say, oh, sure, that, that makes sense. You really do need someone to, I think it helps to have someone to bounce those things off of. And conversely, a director can say, yeah, I don't, know if that, I don't know if that's God or not. That may just be a distraction. Well, and you mentioned training. And so for those that may have no experience with spiritual direction or spiritual directors, they may hear this description and think, what are we talking about? A guru? Are we talking about a yeah. cult leader? And so maybe say a little bit about the kind yeah. of training that a spiritual director receives. <laughs> sure. It's not a cult leader. It's basically someone who helps someone see where God is. And so it's not psychology. You're not a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. And so it's not talking about the psychological roots of what might be going on in your life. It's not advice and it's not pastoral counseling. It's not giving a person sort of a way to understand the problems pastorally. So let's take an example. Uh, and I think I talk about this in the book. Let's say someone comes to you as your directee, that is what they're called. And they talk about losing their job and, and trying to pray about that. And they talk about, let's say, feeling that they're with Jesus in prayer and they start to cry because they're so frustrated and they don't feel Jesus is helping them. Okay, that, that's a classic spiritual direction question. Now, a psychologist would talk about, why are you crying? Why are you doubting yourself? Those kinds of things, psychological things, all right? 
uh, a pastoral counselor would talk about, let's come up with strategies. And a friend would just say, you know, oh, look on the bright side, right? Or, oh, God, I'm sure God's with you, or I'm sure you'll find something. No, the spiritual director would say, all right, let's look at your experience of God in this. Let's look at what happened in prayer. Let's look at where are you encountering God in your daily life? Are there people, places, things that are giving you a sense of God's presence with you. And the person might say, yeah, actually come to think of it. When I was praying, I had this insight that Jesus suffered too. And that made me feel less alone. Okay. That's interesting. And also the other day, a friend of mine was sharing her experiences with me of being out of work and she wasn't trying to solve it, but it made me feel less alone. And I was like, that's interesting. So you've had two experiences, one in prayer and one in your daily life of feeling less alone. Might that be God reaching out to you? Oh, I've never thought of it that way. I never thought of God reaching out to me in those ways. I just thought God would solve the problem. Now, as you say it, that might be God. That's more direction. That's pointing the person and helping the person notice versus just saying, get over it, or I'm sure God has a plan, or I'm sure God will open a door. It's helping the person notice the movements of God, which can be sometimes subtle. And you really do need training for that. Well, and what I hear in this is an echo of what you were saying earlier in the conversation. When we're praying, the things that come to us that are of God are the things that draw us towards hope and towards consolation, the things mm -hmm. that draw us towards reconciliation. So if I'm hearing you correctly, a spiritual director is there to be sort of an extra set of ears to say, have you paid attention to this That's aspect right. of it? Am I saying that right or That's would you say right. it a different way? No, that is, actually, that is absolutely right. A spiritual director helps the person notice. And also the spiritual director can challenge. So for example, a perfect example would be, have you, the, the classic spiritual direction question is, have you prayed about this and what has happened when you pray about it? And if the person says, who in, in, in the book I talk about, I give a, a kind of a, a mock spiritual direction session or a sample spiritual direction session. If the person says, I'm too angry to pray, that's the classic. So, well, let's look at that. Why do you think God would not be able to handle your anger? Let's look at your image of God. Why are you closing down with God? What will happen to the relationship? What happens to a relationship with a friend if you say the things, only the things you think that you should say, and you're really angry about something? Well, it gets cold, formal, distant. Well, gee, that might happen in your relationship with God if you pull back now. And the, the director might encourage the person to speak about being angry, you know, with God, not just angry at the situation, but angry with God. So that's the challenging. So it's not simply the noticing and pointing things out. It's also it can be the directing part. Say, let go back to prayer and be open with Jesus or God about your anger. And so that's part of prayer being in the context of a personal relationship. As we're heading towards break, I want to circle back to one thing that you said in the midst of describing that conversation that you had with Cardinal Dolan. Mm -hmm. And you said, I feel like I can talk about this because it was on a radio show and he's talked about it in public because it was mm -hmm. on the radio show. And so I guess I want to ask you a kind of open-ended question about the distinction between the private and the public when we're talking about prayer. Mm -hmm. Like, how do those notions of, because in the Catholic tradition, there are certain things that are always within the confessional and they, they stay private. There are other things which can be considered to be very public. Where mm -hmm. does prayer fit on that kind of spectrum? Oh, definitely private. I see it as that, that's why when you go to a spiritual director, it's a professional thing. It's like psychology. So you don't share those things. Now, I might share stories that are really disguised. And I have a lot in the book, right? Because I have all this experience with people coming to me for direction, but I'll disguise it. So if, David, if you and I are talking and you share an experience that, you know, that I might bring up in the book, I'd probably change your sex. I'd probably say it was a woman who came to me years ago 
I changed some of the details. So I, it, it would all be confidential. Now, the only reason I talk about Dolan is because he said it, you know, publicly, but I would never say, you know, my friend David had this experience, which I want to share with you because, you know, it's so, yeah, people expect confidentiality. So I only share things to illustrate things. And when I do, I completely change the the person's background. And funny enough, you'll appreciate this. I wrote the book over the course of about 10 years. And as I was going over the galleys, I realized that I had changed some of the characteristics so much that I'd for, I'd forgotten who's told me what. <laughs> so one of the chapters opens up with me having lunch with someone who is struggling with a difficult time in their life. And I, I talk about, have you asked God for help? And this person says, no, because I feel it's selfish or childish. And to be honest, I forget who that is. <laughs> so I forget, is it dinner? Was it lunch? Was it breakfast? So it's good. So I, I've forgotten who that was. So it's, it's, they're very disguised. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're very happy today to welcome back to the show Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. He's written a number of New York Times bestselling books, including Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Longtime listeners will remember his voice because he was on our show a few years back talking about his book, regarding the seven last words of Jesus. Today, we're delighted to be talking about his recent book, Learning to Pray, a guide for everyone out recently from Harper One. We'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we are delighted to welcome back to the show Father James Martin. He is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. He's a consultant to the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication. He's the author of a number of New York Times bestsellers, including Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Longtime listeners will recall that we've had him on the show before talking about the seven last words of Jesus. Today, we're talking about his recent book out from Harper One called Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Well, in your book, Learning to Pray, there's a point where you quote a little bit of the new seeds of contemplation from uh, uh, another vowed religious, Thomas Merton. And at one point in this quotation, there was a line that just jumped out to me. And the line reads, the secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. And you mentioned before the break that it's taken you 
close to a decade to write this book, Learning to Pray. There's a lot of you and your journey in this book, Learning to Pray. It's not an autobiography, but you are talking about your own triumphs and weaknesses, your own moments of struggle. And in, in when you say, you know, you're still learning how to do this. So I wonder, as you come to this line from Thomas Merton, the secret of my identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. Looking back over these 10 years of writing the book, looking back over your career as a Jesuit, how do you hear that line from Merton? Oh, what a great question. Very powerful question. Well, that God is forming me in the Jesuits. We talk about formation, which is basically training, but that uh, God is always forming us and God is always inviting us to grow. I think it's a, it's a tension where all of us, all of our listeners, everyone who's listening is already a beautiful creation of God. Every single person, just beautiful, unique, uh, unrepeatable. And yet we're all called to become the person that God wants us to be. That's the true self. We're all in process. We're all on a journey. So I, I see that as the mercy of God, as, as God helping me to become the person God wants me to be, you know, freeing me up from things as we're all called to be free. And that's Merton's uh, journey towards the true self. And one of the reasons I put so many experiences in the book is I actually liked, I like spiritual writers who do that. And Merton talks about his own failings and people like Henry Nowen, Kathleen Norris, a lot of uh, spiritual writers talk about that. I find it makes it more accessible. And I also think it's important to be vulnerable with the reader and to say, look, I struggle with prayer too. And my prayer can be dry and here are things that I do wrong, the spiritual life. I just, I like reading books like that. And I, I think it, it helps the reader to, in a sense, identify with you and knowing why not be honest with people? Why not, why not share? If I have an experience, good or bad, that I can share with someone, a reader to help them, why not? Right? I mean, as long as I'm not breaking confidence with someone else, why not? So when you use phrases like that, when you say that every single individual is made in the image of God and is beloved of God, there's a real affirmation there. And that makes me think about the fact that you have had a long conversation within the church and with the church around certain individuals that the church is wanting to say are, and I'm going to use now the language of the Catholic Church, intrinsically disordered. And I'm thinking now about your book, Building a Bridge, which is specifically about how the church can build new bridges with the LGBTQ community. And so I'm wondering when we're thinking about prayer and when we're thinking about learning to pray and when we're thinking about people who are hesitating to pray because they're, they don't know enough or they're afraid that they're not going to pray correctly, there are also those that are afraid to pray because they have been told that they don't belong. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about how to encourage those who have been given these messages by the church or by other authorities, how to encourage them, first of all, to feel that sense of love that you're talking about, but also to feel that they are also welcomed into this process of prayer. Well, thanks for that question. And you're right. Many people, many LGBTQ people in the Catholic Church or in other churches experience rejection and marginalization and even persecution from churches. And they conclude, it's not unreasonable, that in a sense, God has rejected them. That doesn't mean everyone feels like that. But they're, if you're rejected from the church, you tend to have less of a, an opening to God. That's Again, that's not everybody. And so one of the first things to remind people is that the church, any church, is not God. Okay, so the church is not God and God wants to have a relationship with everybody. And so even people who feel estranged from the church, you know, are invited to have this encounter with God. And I think in a particular way, these people really need to be invited into that because they've been told so many times that they're bad or 
disordered or whatever. And a lot of times it is a kind of a healing process. And I, I know many people like that. And these experiences in prayer, which happen sometimes for people outside of the church, can be really powerful and really healing. And this is one reason, frankly, that St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, got into so much trouble. Because as he said, it was very controversial in the day that the creator can deal directly with the creature so that God can deal directly with us and does not need to go through the church. You can be walking outside in nature and have a profound experience of God's presence, and it has nothing to do with the church. That's the first thing. Now, I'm speaking as someone who's, you know, devoted his life to not only God, but the Catholic church. So I'm part of the church. But for baptized Christians and baptized Catholics, Another thing to invite them into is a sense of their own baptism and a sense of their own membership in the church. In that, I often tell LGBTQ Catholics, look, if you're baptized, you are as much a part of the church as the Pope, as your local bishop, you know, for example, like Cardinal Supic uh, or me or anybody else. And to really claim that and to understand it that way. So I think both of those messages help. For people who are really estranged and feel that, and often this happens, that God doesn't like them or approve of them. It is inviting them to see places where God has reached out to them. And I think if people look carefully enough, they can find it. One of my favorite lines, I put this in the book, it was from a Jesuit friend of mine named Bob Gilroy, who died at a young age uh, about five years ago. He said that people have these experiences of God, but that they're not encouraged to talk about them. Isn't that a great word? I mean, people have those experiences, but you just need to encourage them to see them. And so that's what I do with LGBTQ people, to, to help them see where God is already present in their lives. You mentioned a moment ago that Ignatius Loyola got in trouble for saying things like the creator can deal directly with the creature. Mm -hmm. Ignatius also got in trouble and the Jesuits that followed him because they are incredibly flexible in the way that they think about spirituality and the approach to evangelization. Like they, they really want to start where people are, regardless of who those people are. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about a passage in your book, Learning to Pray, where you end the chapter this way, in fact, where you've been talking about a person who really doesn't feel like she, and you talk about her various kinds of conversations where she says, well, I don't really know how to do this. And mm -hmm. you end the chapter by basically reflecting on the fact that she's already doing a kind of centering practice. She's already kind of contemplating her breath and those sorts of things. And the modest suggestion is, can you think about where God is in that? And mm -hmm. her response in your at the end of your chapter is, well, I already do that. And the implication is, you already know how to pray. You already know how to do this. So what I'm hearing in your answer to my earlier question is, those that have been told by the church that they don't belong, they already are part of the love of God. The church may not have caught up to that. These are my words, not yours. Mm -hmm. the, the church may not have caught up to that, but they can start where they are. Now, as I say that to you, am I getting it right or would you say it in a different way? No, that's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, a Jesuit from the Midwest named Howard Gray, who worked uh, all over the place to put, before his death at uh, Georgetown University. He would often tell LGBTQ people, God loves you and your church is learning to love you. So I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, God, God loves everyone. I mean, it sounds so banal, but it is something that people need to be invited to see. And now people will say, I think this is a sort of the harder question is, well, how do I know that? What do you say that God loves me? That's like a bumper sticker or some, some poster on a, you know, a wall. And then you start to say, right, let's look at experiences you've had in your life, right? Where you've, you've felt deeply moved or you felt a sense of, uh, you know, calm or consolation to use an Ignatian term. And oftentimes people will be able to point to them, right? Sometimes really peak moments, almost mystical moments. 
And then you say to them, have you ever thought that this was God reaching out to you? Have you ever thought that even the desire for God comes from God? That, you know, how else would God draw you closer into God's presence? Now, and that's the beginning of the spiritual life, considering or even thinking that it's a possibility that these things that have happened to you and that these desires and that these feelings are actually, you know, one way that God has of reaching out to you. One of the great beginnings for people is it's, it's fun to do it with people. People will come and say, I really want to know how to pray, or I'm really interested in God, or I read this book about some saint or Mother Teresa or Pope Francis, and I just feel this desire to go deeper. And I'll say, well, where do you think that comes from? And they'll say, well, it comes from me. And okay, well, let's dig a little deeper. Where else could it come from? And they'll say, God. (laughs) And I'll say, yeah, how else would God work? How else would God draw you closer or call to you other than to work through your, your inner life and to work through these attractions? And you say that, so this is an invitation from God. And it makes it a lot less frightening for people because it's not just their own sort of curiosity, but it's it now a two-way street and they can trust that God is drawing them into this. And so once once you're able to encourage people to see it that way, really, th- then they're fine and then they're open to things. But so that for me is the beginning. It was summed up by a plaque I saw at a retreat house that I quote in the book, which I loved. It was this light blue sort of ceramic plaque. And it said, that which you seek is seeking you. And I think this the feeling of desire or the desire to encounter God is God's desire to encounter you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father James Martin. He's been on the show before talking about his book regarding the seven last words of Jesus. Today, we're talking about his recent book out from Harper One called Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Well, in what you were just saying, it reminds me of a portion in your book where you're asking, what is prayer anyway? And you you say that there's one type of understanding of prayer that says, it's my desire to connect with God. But there's another way of understanding prayer, and that is, it's God's desire to be connecting with me. And that's a radical notion for some people, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Well, it's bizarre. When I was a Jesuit novice and people talked about God's desire to be in relationship with you, I thought, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. I would see God as a far off, God does whatever God does. But the idea that God would want to be in relationship with me seemed ridiculous, to be honest. And it may seem ridiculous to people who are listening. But then when you unpack that and you say, okay, well, let's look at the kinds of things that happen to you personally, very individually. I'll give you an example. So I often direct, or before the pandemic, I would direct pilgrimages to the Holy Land, annual pilgrimages for about 10 days with about 100 people. And at the end of the day, you know, it's very moving for a lot of people. At the end of the day, we would have what's called faith sharing, which sounds really hokey, but it's basically sharing something interesting, meaningful, or significant that happened in the day. And, you know, usually people connect that with God. And what was really interesting, I, I always marveled at this, and the group always marveled at it, was the way that God was really personal in reaching out to people. So, for example, we'd be in a group and someone would say, oh, I looked at the Sea of Galilee today at, the, at sunrise and I burst into tears because it was so beautiful and I felt you know, really close to God. And another person will say, yeah, I, I saw that same sunrise and it didn't do anything for me. And then another person will say, oh my gosh, did you see the, the beautiful statue in that church that we were in today? Wasn't it powerful? And a person will say, oh yeah, I saw it. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't really like that statue. Another person will say, oh, that line in that homily by father was so moving. Oh, oh really? Oh yeah. Okay. 
So what's the point? The point is that God reaches out to us in very personal ways. So what moves one person doesn't move another person. And then when you start to see that, you start to see how to coin a phrase, God meets you where you are. And so therefore people start to say, well, gosh, that is a kind of personal relationship. It's really tailored to who I am. And yet it's the same God and the same spirit that is at work. And it's pretty amazing. So I'm amazed as a spiritual director, both at the, in a sense, the, the uniformity of God's action, which is, again, always about hope and uplift and peace and the individuality of it. It's really incredible when you think about it. People, you know, let's say uh, someone is, again, walking on Lake Michigan and they see the sun hit the, the water a certain way or the, the sun go through the leaves in a certain way or they feel the breeze on their face and they just feel the sense of, oh my gosh, spring is coming. I just feel the sense of hope. That's a very personal experience, right? Another person might be walking right next to them and say, oh yeah, it's sunny out. So, God speaks to people through very personal ways. And I think that's, uh, that's one way to encourage people to see God's desire for a personal relationship. And then it seems a lot less crazy. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about this image of Cardinal Dolan imagining in prayer, holding the baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that was a profound moment for me reading that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. thinking about the incarnation, thinking about God choosing to become that tiny, that vulnerable, that dependent. That speaks to something in, I think, what I'm hearing you saying, and that is relationship demands vulnerability. And a God who wants relationship is not going to be aloof and powerful and far off. A God who wants relationship will offer some vulnerability. Now, when I say that, is that crazy or am I onto something here? You're onto something, but I'd like to focus on something else. You just illustrated what we were talking about. So you found that particular passage moving. Is that right? That is correct. That's correct. And you found it moving because of why? Uh, Because of thinking about my own children. I think about the very first time that I held my daughter right after she was born Mm -hmm. and how overwhelmed I felt. And I felt her vulnerability, but I also felt mine. I was like, I don't know how to do this. I'm not sure if I'm up to this. Like all of those feelings came back to me when I thought about Cardinal Dolan holding the baby Jesus and how overwhelming it would feel to not only hold someone who is precious and human, but also God. All right. So we'll do a little spiritual direction. So David, so you would say in that passage, you felt God in a sense offering you that insight or offering you that memory, correct? Absolutely. There you go. So perfect. So God has, in a sense, I'm glad you brought that up and I think it helps the listeners. God, in a sense, spoke to you through that passage and that's nothing crazy or you didn't see a vision or hear voices, but God, you can say, spoke to you through that particular passage. Now, that passage might leave someone else completely cold. They might read it and say, well, that's nice. But they might not have the experience that you have in terms of connecting with your own personal experience. And so we see just from what you've described and just from what you've shared with the listeners, the way that God can work very personally and individually and uniquely through your experiences in a particular moment, in a particular way that probably wouldn't strike anybody else as different. And so that's beautiful. That's a real example of God's meeting you where you are through, and in this case, what? Through a book. So it's beautiful. That's the kind of stuff that we would talk about in direction, just that. So thanks for that example. Well, thank you for doing that little moment of spiritual direction with me. But this raises for me a question about particularity. 
And mm-hmm. we've mentioned at several points, you're a Catholic priest, you have given your life to the Catholic Church, and the the sort of cosmos that this book, Learning to Pray, exists in is a cosmos that acknowledges the presence of Catholic faith and Catholic spiritual ideas. Mm-hmm. But the tagline of your book, Learning to Pray, is a guide for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to hear how you see this very sort of Catholic-centric book speaking to everyone. What's the invitation there, and how should a non-Catholic hear that invitation? Oh, yeah. Well, it is for everyone, and prayer is much bigger than the Catholic Church. And I write as a Catholic priest and a Jesuit priest with a certain set of experiences, and as a man and as a white man, as a 60 year old man, et cetera, et cetera. But prayer is really for everyone because God, again, wants to be in touch with everyone and God wants to encounter everybody. So I try to make it as accessible as possible. And I talk about some things that are Catholic. For example, I'm talking about Cardinal Dolan and being on his radio show. But for the most part, it's not it's not specifically Catholic and anyone can really use that book. I mean, I've had Protestants who came to me for spiritual direction. I've had, I've talked obviously to agnostics and atheists. I had a rabbi for a couple of months as a directee. So I try to make it really accessible. And look, I believe that God really does want a relationship with everyone and God wants to encounter everyone in prayer. And so I would certainly not write a book that was just for Catholics. I recognize that this book took you, as you say, around a decade to write, and that there's a lot that went into this book that is distant to you now, as you've said in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. But I wonder, is there anything as you're looking back over the creation of this book that especially surprised you when you were thinking about this or learning about this? I think what surprised me was <laughs> I started out writing a short book, and it was as if every chapter invited me to write another one. I thought, well, now I have to write about this. That I, For example, when I wrote about what happens in prayer, the kinds of things we're talking about, right? Emotions, desires, insights, like what happened to you was an insight and a memory, right? It dawned on me, oh my gosh, now I have to write about, well, how do you determine whether or not this is from God or whether this is not from God? As I wrote, I thought, well, I have to talk about distractions. And so I wanted to be as comprehensive as possible, because I want people who might not have the experience of going to a spiritual director or having a spiritual director to have this book as a kind of carry along spiritual director. So I think what surprised me is how long it was. It's funny, my mother said to me, how long is the book? And I said, it's 380 pages. And she said, 380 pages on prayer. (laughs) She said, what can you possibly say? I said, well, people have a lot of questions. And I wanted to be sure uh, before I finished that it was as much as I could say about prayer and and really anticipate the questions because I've experienced so many people who really struggle with it and they think they're the only ones that have these problems. And so this book is also a kind of encouragement to prayer. Well, Father Martin, as we're drawing towards the end of our conversation, I'm going to ask you a question that you may choose to answer or not. But I wonder if As you're thinking about prayer and as we're talking together, there are listeners who may feel moved to pray for you. And I wonder if you're comfortable, what would you ask listeners to pray for for you at this time? Oh, gee, I'd be I'm always happy when people pray for me. Gee, what I ask them to pray for, I guess I'd ask them to pray for my continued health, for my ability to live out my Jesuit vocation in a, in a wholehearted way. And yeah, I think those two things would be, I think my health and my vocation, I'd be perfectly happy with that. So I, and I thank people for their prayers. I talk about praying for people in the book too. So if they need any advice on how to do that, they can, they can buy the book. 
Well, Father James Martin, it is such a delight to have you back on the show. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I also really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot from it just because it is comprehensive. It starts with the basics and it really builds. Here are all the different possibilities. Here, here are obstacles. Here are ways to deal with those obstacles. You really have taken a 360-degree look at the practice of prayer, not only in the Christian tradition, but more generally. And I think that listeners will really benefit from picking up this book. I benefited from reading it. I'm very grateful that you took the time to write it. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk to us about it today. Well, my pleasure. We've been speaking today with the Reverend James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest. He's editor-at-large at America Magazine. He's a consultant to the Vatican's Dicastery for Communication, and he's the author of numerous New York Times bestselling books, including Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. We've had him on the show before to talk about the seven last words of Jesus, and today we've been talking about his recent Harper One book, Learning to Pray, A Guide for Everyone. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.